Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is Quinquagesima Sunday and the epistle is taken from St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Brethren, if I should speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have charity, I've become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, yet do not have charity, I am nothing. And if I distribute all my goods to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, yet do not have charity, it profits me nothing. Charity is patient, is kind. Charity does not envy, is not pretentious, is not puffed up, is not ambitious, is not self-seeking, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice over wickedness, but rejoices with the truth, bears with all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never fails, whereas prophecies will disappear and tongues will cease and knowledge will be destroyed. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is imperfect will be done away with. When I was a, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I felt as a child. I thought as a child. Now that I've become a man, I have put away the things of a child. We see now through a mirror in an obscure manner, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I have been known. So there abide faith, hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. Luke. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time, Jesus, taking to himself the twelve, said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that have been written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and scourged and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will put him to death. And on the third day he will rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hidden from them. Neither did they get to know the things that were being said. Now it came to pass, as he drew near to Jer Jericho, that a certain blind man was sitting by the wayside begging. But hearing a crowd passing by, he inquired what this might be. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they who were, went in front angrily tried to silence him. But he cried out all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then Jesus stopped and commanded that he should be brought to him. And when he drew near, he asked him, saying, What wouldst thou have me do for thee? And he said, Lord, that I may see. And Jesus said to him, Receive thy sight, thy faith has saved thee. And at once he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people upon seeing it gave praise to God. 
So far are the words of this day's Holy Gospel. We see now through a mirror in an obscure manner, but then face to face. These are words taken from the readings of today's Mass in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, when I was a child and used to go to the movies every Sunday afternoon, they had, before the main features began, which was usually a double feature on some cowboy movie, what they called previews of coming attractions and they would give you a sort of a little bit of the coming um, movies that were going to be shown the following Sunday so that you'd be sure to come back enough to get you excited but not enough to give away, give away the whole story. And you might say that what we're getting in our life in the scripture readings, the prophecies that uh, will be fulfilled is a preview of coming attractions. Now, we sit as spectators sometimes sort of um, looking forward to some of these things, whether good or bad, in an obscure way. We don't get the full picture, we get a little clue here or there of what it's going to be like, but get the full impact is very difficult, unless you've read the book before you go to see the movie. Um, we know that terrible things have been said in Scripture. And our Lord himself wept over Jerusalem. He tried to tell the people previews of coming attractions that unless they straightened out their lives, bettered their ways, it would be worse for them than for Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities that were buried in brimstone and fire in the Old Testament. And Jerusalem was destroyed. He says, in the coming days, the last days, men will faint with fear for the things that are coming about, and they will cry out to the earth, open to swallow them, or mountains to fall upon them, that they would envy the dead for the terrors and the horrors of the final days. Well, we hear these things, and even though they're not pleasant to think about, the full impact cannot begin to be realized. We are unaware or somewhat asleep. Someone says we are sleepwalkers, really, as to the events of the new world order that are being planned. In fact, they're already underway. Now, take, for example, if somebody's going to build a dam. Now, it's not one person, but a dam is under uh, consideration to be constructed. How do they go about building a dam? Well, first of all, they survey the territory, and they pick out the most likely spot that's uh, su suitable for putting a dam in, and then they begin the paperwork. They've done all the engineering, and they've got all their tools and materials organized before the laborers begin to build this dam. So it is with any building. You just don't start building 
you locate the building, then you start preparing the specifications, then you get the tools and materials, then you start building. Well, the New World Order isn't something new. You hear about it, you have much of an idea what it's going to be like. It's already been planned, it's already been engineered, the tools are being gathered, and the tools are the desensitization that's been going on, the pummeling of our minds, the substitution of values of the past that have evaporated and dried up and have moved away, so to speak, and no longer exist. And we've gotten acquainted and accustomed to some of the new things we don't like, and this is true in our church as well. And we wonder, well, how do these things you know, manage to take place? Who's, want, who's minding the store? Well, we wonder who is overseeing the store, because these things just don't happen by accident. And when you begin to realize that the leaders of our country and the leaders of our church are asleep or have been enlisted in a sinister scheme of a new world order that promises all kinds of benefits, we are deluded into thinking that this is a good deal and we can go along with it only if we realize that unless the building be built by God, in vain do the laborers build. Unless the city be watched by the sentinels that God himself sends, then in vain do the watchmen guard because the enemy will infiltrate. They'll come through Trojan horse mechanisms but they will deceive, which is the strategy of the devil. So what we are considering this morning is the subject of evil and of sin and of putting sin out of our lives. Not that we won't be touched by the effects of sins, but we will not be the generators of these sins, which is the important thing. We live in the world, but not of the world. And what does this all mean? It means that any sin will destroy, it will kill, it will cause pain and suffering. Now, we sit like observers at these previews of coming attractions without realizing that for every sin done, there is a seed planted that will bear more seeds of evil. And as these <coughs> fall in turn, will produce more and more seeds of evil and destruction, and disorder, and pain, and suffering, and death. So, what we observe is the brutalizing of our minds, and our bodies, fear and terror, and this is just the beginning. We talk about the black helicopters, we talk about the control of the law, we talk about the building of more prisons and whatnot. We have an uncomfortable sense about all of these things going on and we hope that therefore the criminals, the evil people, rather than for the good who will appear evil to those who are evil. And we need to focus then on the subject, the slant of good and evil, of sin and virtue, and of our consciences, our consciences that are informed correctly 
that are not uh, blighted, that are not desensitized, that have not been substituted with a new sense of freedom, which is an illusion, but a hard-nosed, strong-minded sense of right and wrong and our obligation and duty to pursue that as Christ pursued his journey to Jerusalem. He gave his apostles a preview of coming attractions. He was going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be scourged and crowned and crucified. They did not understand any more than the man at the city gate could see until Christ opened his eyes. So this Lent, God uh, gives us a chance to open our eyes to see that we are going to face tough choices in the future. We are going to be seduced. We're going to be tantalized. We're going to be threatened. There are going to be many events that are going to challenge our sense of right and wrong, good and evil of sin and virtue. And we come to this. What will our relationship to God be through this testing of these last days? Whether we live through them, whether they will be beyond what we will see in the future, we don't know, but the events are already taking place. What will your duty to God be? What will you do of that duty? And so we're going to consider this morning in our studies the subject of actual sin. Now I placed a question box on the back of the chapel there on the organ with some paper and pencils for you if you have questions about the subject of sin, which is a difficult subject. And... Uh, We'll try to answer these questions if we don't cover the material in the course of our sermons during Lent so that we get a true, clear knowledge of what sin really is, what evil really is. Now, we've already given you a clue that any sin, regardless of how it's classified, is basically disorder. And when you have disorder you have a shaking of the structure that God has built in creation, which is going to be a destructive kind of activity. We talked about original sin, and we said it's not really sin in the same sense that we talk of actual sin. Original sin was committed as an actual sin by Adam and Eve. Now, this topic is no longer taught as it once was. So we see the sinister changes in the catechism or the doctrine of the Novus Ordo Church that original sin doesn't come to the soul from Adam and Eve, a direct contradiction to what the church has always taught, but it's a sinful condition of the world around us. And therefore, the child is born good. And then the baptism ceremony of initiation into the Christian community will try to keep him strong in his faith and his practice so he will not then fall into sin which will be original sin for him uh, we see these erosions these intrusions of error and deception and those who trust blindly will be inclined to follow the new teachings my own classmates over the years have lost sight of the fact that 
unbaptized babies who die without baptism do not go to heaven. They don't go to hell, but they deny limbo. And this has been a subject, as I said, our bishop here has said that the church never taught about limbo. Well, then if you ask the question, then babies don't have to be baptized. Immediately a tension is set up and the answer has to be, oh yes, they have to be baptized, but then the further question is why? If there is no original sin of a lack of grace that must be furnished by baptism, then why baptize? And we see that these questions begin to be like dominoes. Once you knock down the first and you're knocking down the second and all the rest that follow in the train that brings us into Protestantism. Now, Protestants are not worried about sin. There was a debate between a Catholic theologian and a Protestant theologian, and the Protestant theologian brought up to the Catholic theologian, he says, you Catholics worry about sin. We Protestants don't have to. Once we have accepted Christ as our Savior, our sins are covered. And while we are not to sin, if we do, we don't have to worry about confessing them or doing anything about them because faith is stronger than sin and overcomes the sin. Faith in the merits of Christ. And there is no need for us to do any salvation works because the work has been done by Christ as a gratuitous gift. This is strong, basic Protestant theology that is slowly filtering into the ecumenical mind of Novus Ordo Catholics. That were already saved. Pope John Paul II calls it incarnational theology that by the birth of Christ all men are saved and yet there's this ambiguity uh, as it were, uh, saved as it were, uh, what does it mean? Then the domino begins to hit the next uh, and pretty soon that uh, we're all saved. There's no need for Christ on the cross crucified but the resurrected Christ, these clues that show that the redemption has already taken place and we all we have to do is celebrate the joyful a redemption of ourselves uh, and everybody goes to heaven. The white vestments of the funeral mass instead of black. Uh, the rejoicing of everybody going to heaven instead of the prayers for the dead. Little by little these erosions will creep into the changing liturgies as time will show us the direction that these ideas are taking place. Well so much as we repeat again the subject of original sin. What is actual sin? This is lesson 21 on page 50 <coughs> of your notebooks, if you have them. Actual sins, what a person commits, personally responsible for. When you reach the age of reason, now you can distinguish what is right and what is wrong, and with a sense of responsibility of doing what is right and avoiding what is wrong. Actual sin, then, is any willful thought, desire, word, action, or omission forbidden by the law of God. Here's the standard, the law of God. So we've got to know that law, the Ten Commandments. We'll get to them later on. But here today we're talking about sin and the nature of sin. Any breaking of a law of God willfully, whether it's a thought, word, act, or omission, 
is an actual sin that carries the grave responsibility of guilt and the necessity of repentance and the removal of that sin by a amendment of life and penance done for the sin committed. Now, there are two general classes of sins, original and actual. Original sin is the kind of sin that we inherit from Adam. It's not a sin in the sense that it's a black stain, but it's an absence of grace. Remember that. That's important when we talk about original sin. Otherwise, Protestants will laugh at our concept of a black stain inherited from Adam and Eve. It's not a guilt that we're responsible for, but it's a lack that something was not given to us that should have been given to us by our parents, like an inheritance that was lost. We should have had it, but our parents lost it and can't pass it on. So we're penniless. That's the way we can think of original sin. We have no funds to get us into heaven. Christ brought those funds, and we cash in on his inheritance, and we have the right then to enter heaven with him, provided we live with him and we die with him, which is the burden of Lent and our life on this earth. Actual sin is the kind of sin that we ourselves commit. In general, when we speak of sin, we mean actual sin. That's the basic meaning of sin. Sin is an offense against God, a violation of his commandments. Strange that in all the arguments against abortion and all these other things, pornography, uh, God's rights are never brought up. It's an offense against God. It's a violation of his commandments. But we're talking in human terms that it's a violation against human dignity and all these other substitutes at a lower level. No, we keep God's commandments and if we must, we will die to keep these commandments because it is our service and duty to God. And if we substitute anything else, then it's idolatry or a form of idolatry that we're practicing. To sin is to despise God, to disobey Him, to offend Him. One who sins takes the gifts that God has given and uses them to insult him. Now, it may not be done consciously, but in effect, that's what happens. We've got to look at the end result of what a sin really is, no matter what we think. The only human being who was created without sin and never committed sin was the Blessed Virgin Mary. This was a special privilege bestowed on her because she was to be the mother of our Savior. But it did not take away her freedom she cooperated, and that's the key. Blessed art thou because thou hast believed, Elizabeth told her. Blessed art thou because thou hast believed, and you followed this belief and did not sin. You had the extra help, yes, but you cooperated. So she wasn't put under a glass jar and kept uh, sterile. She was a human being on this earth, but without original sin, she also produced no sin of her own. St. John says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are disorderly, we're ignorant, we're weak. We make many mistakes, you can call that a disorder. It's a called, in theology, a mistake is called a material sin. Not a formal sin like actual sin for which we're guilty, but a mistake nevertheless, a disorder that is going to cause harm. And we fall seven times a day. Even in the justification of grace, a just man falls seven times or many times a day. So we make many mistakes. And uh, we're not sinless. In what way do we fall into sin? We fall step by step from temptation into sin. 
And remember, Adam and Eve were not created evil. They were placed in the Garden of Paradise. And who entered in? An evil spirit. He tempted them. And they fell to the temptation. Otherwise, they would not have been subjected to a test. The different steps at times follow each other rapidly and are accomplished in the twinkling of an eye. So we have to analyze it by carefully dissecting it, so to speak. And this is a theological sort of analysis of what sin really is and how it takes place. Sin is not committed without temptation. Sin is not committed without a temptation. That's interesting to think about. Uh, we're not sinning uh, all the time. There's a temptation to test us. Now we're conscious. Now the flag is up. Now we're aware. First, an evil thought comes into the mind, whether somebody puts it there, whether it comes of itself, or whether we deliberately arouse it. There is a thought in the mind. Not outside of you, it's inside of you. This in itself is not sinful. It's important to get that distinction because many people have a sort of a hyper sense that they've thought of it, therefore they had no right to be there and they, they've committed a sin somehow. No. Uh, a sinful thought may about it be about a sinful subject, but not sinful in itself in the sense of being uh, a responsibility of the person who deliberately causes it. It is only a temptation, and there's never any sin in the temptation as such. But you might say that's the kickoff. Now, what are you going to do with the ball? A man may be in a jewelry store looking at some jewels. The salesman turns away to talk to someone uh, else, leaving a precious diamond ring on the counter. The thought enters the man's mind that it would be easy for him to take the ring and walk away unnoticed. The thought. This is a temptation, not a sin. He hasn't done anything about it yet. He hasn't reacted. If we do not immediately reject the thought, now the next thing is, and it could be in a twinkling of an eye, it awakens in the mind an affection or liking for it. Now, temptation doesn't present something ugly and, and evil. It presents something attractive. And that's the deception in the temptation. It's an evil that looks good. And if you don't turn away from the wrongness of the thing, you'll see every reason for doing the thing that is out of order. If a man in the uh, above example does not resist and reject the thought, but plays with it and becomes pleased with the idea, he thereby gives partial consent. What's our obligation? Distance yourself from evil. Here is an opportunity to do something evil. Distance yourself from it. When we get the habit of doing that quickly, temptations will not take hold. When we play with it, we let it sort of set on the table and uh, attract us, pretty soon we begin to see that maybe I can justify doing this uh, for a good reason. And he commits a slight sin by playing with it. It's like putting yourself deliberately in an occasion of sin. You may not commit the sin, but you deliberately put yourself as plain with it. Next, the thought is followed by an evil desire in which we take pleasure. Now, that phrase, in which we take pleasure, is a little bit difficult because you have the attraction to begin with 
and then the pleasure you take afterwards, uh, it's hard to distinguish just where the line is that you crossed in order to say, yes, now I want it. Now I'm going to do something about it. Now I'm going to steal it. He hasn't moved a finger yet, but he's made a mental uh, determination. That's very difficult sometimes, especially with bad thoughts. Um, when did I consent, or did I consent? I don't know. Sometimes it's hard for the person involved to know. But the thought is followed by an evil desire. Now, a desire is something that you actually um, choose. It's the choice. If you haven't made a choice yet, then there's no sin. Once you make a choice, then you're responsible. And the consequences follow. If still playing with the thought, the man wishes that he could take the diamond without being noticed, the, set, the consent is complete. Now, the only thing holding him back is he doesn't want to get caught. Now, how can he figure a way of getting around this so he can get that ring, which he's already determined to take? He's already committed the sin. Maybe a policeman walks in and he walks away from the jewelry, but he's already committed the sin because he's determined already to take it if he can get away with it. The resolution to commit the sin when occasion presents itself follows. Then the exterior act is committed. He takes it. He's already determined to take it, and he follows through in taking it. Say, so, well, I didn't take it, therefore it's not a sin. No, if you determined you were going to take it, even momentarily, once you made that determination, that's when the sin takes place. All sin is interior. It's externalized by completing the action of taking it. Finally, the man glances to see if the salesman is still busy. Then he takes the ring and walks away with it. Thus, the wish or desire has been translated into an exterior act. Even should the man be prevented from stealing, he is guilty of grave sin. Now, this is where you cross the threshold. It is up to each one to determine when he has done that for himself. You can't tell when another person has sinned. He may have been mistaken. He may have been confused. He may have thought it was his when it was not. There are a lot of excusing reasons, but the person will know for himself or herself when he's deliberately done evil. And that is why we don't accuse anybody in confession. When you come in, you've already been trained. You've been taught how to judge yourself, not others. Or if you're to command or to uh, teach others, then to help them to determine in their conscience what is right and what is wrong. But each one knows when he's done something wrong or when he was not doing something wrong. And he confesses accordingly before God. So you can deceive the priest, but you can't deceive God. And you can't deceive yourself. So we say make good confessions. Otherwise, you not only have those sins, but you compound them by a bad sacrilegious misuse of confession and you are worse off by going. Why is an exterior sin more evil than an interior sin? Well, because it adds the gravity of the consequences. If you steal something, you've got to put it back. If you didn't steal it, you don't have to put it back because you didn't take it, but you're still guilty of the sin interiorly. Uh, Drunkenness reduces the drunkard and his family to poverty and sickness and so on. Impurity destroys the body, sometimes producing insanity and so on. Murder often leads the culprit to the electric chair and other evils. I mean, these are just extensions of evil produced by evil. And worse, an exterior sin increases the malice of the will. 
and destroys the sense of shame. This is the desensitization that the first time the sin seems terrible, the second time not so terrible, the third time less terrible, and after a while becomes a habit, and pretty soon it doesn't seem bad at all. When a person has deadened his conscience, he is in serious condition. A person recognizes a sin is still okay because he will rid himself of that sin. But when he no longer recognizes sin, then he has lost his sense of faith, of hope, because he um, hasn't despaired. He's merely presumed that uh, he's all right. And charity, of course, because he's lost his love of God. The repetition of exterior sins forms the habit of sinning, and vice is formed. It becomes a vice, becomes a habitual way. We call that a perversion. That's a state of sin. A person can be in a state of sin for years. And if it continues, he can even invert it, where he's lost to any means of grace reaching him, because he's turned inside out, like a pocket, becomes a non-pocket. So his faith becomes non-faith, and his charity becomes non-charity. How do you infuse it with faith or charity if it's not even able to hold it? The conscience goes to sleep, and the sinner becomes so hardened that he no longer sees the evil and wickedness of his sin. That's why they say the greatest safeguard of purity is purity itself. When a person loses purity, he's horrified at the sin he's committed, but as purity increases and continues, then it becomes a way of life, and then pretty soon it doesn't seem bad. Everybody else approves it or uh, knows, does, not, does not know about it or whatever excuse he forms, he's hardened and he's lost his sense of repentance and he slips into perversion and vice and then possibly even into the inversion of um, loss of faith, hope, and charity. Are all evil acts sinful? Not all evil acts are sinful. There may be times when such acts are, are not sinful as when we do not know that the act is sinful. Converts to the faith are sometimes stunned that what they were doing was sinful, but didn't know. It wasn't a sin, actually, because their conscience was not guided correctly, and therefore they were in erroneous conscience, which they followed, and had no other way of knowing. Therefore, they made mistakes, but not sins. A Catholic who is informed cannot do the same thing without sinning. So that's why we are concerned so much in our Catholic Church and our Catholic way of life about sin and about evil and the dangers to sinning. Uh, when the act is done through no fault of our own, um, father backs his family car out of the garage and runs over his child. What a horrible evil, but not a sin. He never intended it. Um, so if you're not aware, the evil may be there, but not a sin. And thirdly, when we do not consent to the evil. Somebody's got a gun to your head and says, open that combination, and you do so. But you were forced. The price of your life over the little amount of money, whatever it might be, in the safe. So therefore, you cooperate, but you do not consent. You're forced. Force and fear are the two excusing factors to some degree 
to the gravity or seriousness of sin and is taken into consideration. If a person is drunk or stunned, half asleep, all of these things take away from his freedom and therefore the deliberateness of his choices under these mental conditions. So you see, we have to show you how to judge yourself because no one can judge you externally adequately. Uh, when are we guilty of sins which we ourselves do not commit? Ah, now we come to a matter of cooperation. We are guilty of sins which we ourselves do not com uh, commit when we cooperate with another person's sins. Now, we share in another sin by counseling, telling them how to uh, do something wrong. So teachers beware. You don't teach evil. Secondly, by command. I insist that you do this. Parents, be careful that you don't insist your children do evil. By consent. Oh, this is how we can get away with it. And you throw in with it. And cooperate. By provocation, which means by lying, by hiding. No, he didn't do that. He wasn't here. It's a lie. And you cooperate with that person's sin. By praise or flattery, encouraging. That's called scandal, really. To leading another person into sin by praising him or flattering him. Or by silence. Silence um, is a way of hiding evil. Sometimes difficult to know when you're bound to reveal something. These are delicate issues with regards to a person's good name and our responsibilities. And we'll go into these a little bit later. But if you deliberately do something that um, cooperates in this sense by silence, then you're guilty. By assistance, by helping, by defense or concealment, and by not punishing the evil done. So lawmakers who let criminals off are guilty because they encourage them and others to continue doing things that are evil. One who attempts or provokes another to interest in is perhaps the more guilty of the two. Go ahead and do it. Nobody's going to notice. If you don't take it, somebody else will. Well, then the person who would not have done it does it as a consequence, and you are even more guilty than they. Our Lord says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it were better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Previews of coming attractions, you know. Better that. This must needs be the scandals come, our Lord says, but woe to the man by whom they come. How many kinds of actual sins are there? We'll talk about these later. There are two kinds, actual sins, mortal sin and venial sin. Then there are other classifications, sins of thought, sins of desire, sins of word, sins of deeds, works, actions, or sins of omission, things that should have been done that were not done. So we're going to be going into this subject more fully in the weeks ahead. I have a handbook of moral theology that gives us a sort of a clinical summary of how to evaluate the kinds of sins and the degrees of sins. Uh, we are in our Catholic religion very concerned about sin, very concerned about evil, very concerned about um, temptations, occasions of sin and a consciences that they be formed correctly not too lax and not too severe so that we don't become scrupulous but to have the sense of our duty to God and when we recognize who God is 
then that sense of duty is more easily fostered and the sense of sin becomes more pronounced and we will be more careful then in what we say, think, or do as a consequence. So this is actual sin and this is the kind of sin that you will be held responsible before the judgment throne of God. And so during the season of Lent, let us grow more conscious of God, ourselves, our responsibilities to God, and the occasions whereby we can practice virtue as well as fail in sinning and to have recourse to overcoming sin by absolution and a firm purpose of amendment. And so we will no longer be children, but mature in our spiritual lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.